My name is Norma Farthing, and I am a member of the teaching team here at Grace. What a blessing it is to meet every week with those extraordinary men and women and discuss God's Word. And I am particularly indebted this week to James Covington, who is a member of that team, and my own sweet husband, John, for their help with the Greek text. Y'all know that the Bible wasn't written in English. It wasn't written in, paragraph, in uh, verses, right, in chapters. And so, especially with a text this rich, you want to dig into it. You want to see what the Greek says. And uh, I, I've been blessed this week, especially. And I, I'm also thankful today to have some friends from War Eagle Cove. When John and I moved there five years ago, we, these neighbors just embraced us and took us in. And they have made us so welcome, and they have become really dear friends. And some of my Cove neighbors are here today, and I hope you'll make them feel welcome. It's an honor for me to be sharing God's word. This is my grandson, Layton. That's him. Layton has it all. He has good looks, charm, intelligence, affection, personality. The kid's eaten up with personality. And he has the tenderest heart. No telling how many butterflies are alive today out in War Eagle Cove because of the countless caterpillars Layton has rescued. His poppy says the last time a child was born sweeter than Layton, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. This is also Layton. You see what I see? Really grungy feet. Grime packed around and under the toenails. Skin toes, dirt in every crease and pore rough, scaly souls. And they smell bad, too. This is one little boy who is all boy. He takes great delight in gross. But one of Layton's favorite things is foot rubs. Anna, he grins. Will you rub my feet? And of course I do. Plops those filthy piggies in my lap and my heart just melts. Seriously. You saw his smile. Did you reject those dimples? But the ultimate reason I do it is that I love Layton. I am utterly and fiercely devoted to that child, and I can't imagine anything, anything, I 
Our relationship with Leighton's feet helps me to identify with the woman in today's text. This woman loved Jesus, period. Her passionate devotion and fierce love for Jesus made it impossible for anyone or anything to keep her from his feet. It didn't matter that Jesus' feet were dirty. Probably smelly, too. He was, after all, human, just like we are. He didn't have divine feet. It didn't matter that she was the only woman in a room where women were not welcomed. It didn't matter that every man in the room thought she was horrible. The only person in that room who mattered to her was Jesus loved him, and she was determined to show him that she did. Interestingly, all four Gospels have a narrative about a woman who washed Jesus' feet. It is my personal opinion that Matthew, Mark, and John all tell the same story, that Luke, uh, that particular washing took place toward the end of his ministry, and I believe that the one in Luke, which takes place in the middle of his ministry, is unique and appears only in Luke. So uh, since that's only tangential to our study, we'll not go there today. But specifically, I want to focus on two sinners who encounter Jesus, each with a very different response. Let's pray. Lord, we do invite you to say, may my words be your words, and may our hearts be receptive and changed as we hear your words. So let's begin with our reading. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of that town, who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with perfumed oil. There is so much we don't know here. Strangely, Luke gives us little to go on. We don't know where Jesus is, except that he's somewhere in Galilee. We don't know the occasion for the dinner party or why Jesus was invited to it. Initially, we don't even know anything about the host except that he was a Pharisee. And most importantly, we never know this woman's name. Some commentators say that Luke withholds her name out of grace or sympathy. That may be. But there are other places where Luke withholds names when there is no reason to do so. 
Maybe Luke just thinks that names are not always germane to whatever point he's trying to make. And Luke's point is always about Jesus. Story about Jesus. Even in our brief study these past few weeks, we've seen Jesus doing some pretty radical stuff. We saw Jesus at his hometown declaring himself to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We saw him calling the fishermen, healing on the Sabbath, and even raising the dead. Clearly, Jesus was unlike any prophet who ever came before him. Little wonder that he became so popular. By the time we get to this dinner party, Luke is the, uh, Jesus is the best-known celebrity around. People have differing motives for wanting to meet him, to be with him. And when they find out he's in the house, they show up in droves. That was customary then. Houses, especially palatial ones, were built around open courtyards where meals were taken and uh, guests were served. And it was also customary for the host to gather some of the best thinkers around to hear the famous rabbi and to discuss his ideas. And people were welcome to come in off the street. They even put chairs around the room so that people could come in, sit down, and listen to the discussion. Simon must have been a person of some prominence because he's one of the few Jewish leaders to be called by name in the gospel. Apparently, Simon had heard about Jesus, and he was curious to see for himself what this teacher from Nazareth was all about. There's no indication that Simon had any genuine interest in becoming a disciple of Jesus. The, feat, the, the, the fact that Jesus was his, not his only guest suggests that Simon had some friends there as well. Were they simply curious? Did Simon have questions about Jesus? Was he out to demonstrate that his piety was superior to this carpenter from Nazareth? We don't know. And we never know the woman's name. Clearly, though, she had one. To everyone in town, she is simply sinner. Like a huge sign attached to her back or to her chest, she wears the name sinner. When Luke says a woman of the town was a sinner, he doesn't mean necessarily that she was a prostitute. She may well have been, I don't know. But what it really means, I think, is that she had had her identity taken away because everybody else had decided how to define her. And that was as sinner. Wherever she goes, whatever she does, that's all they see. Sinner. In her autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Maya Angelou writes about the pain of being called out of one's name. 
although her given name was Marguerite, she was called whatever her white masters, mistresses, wanted to call her because they had never seen her as a real person. She may as well have been a chair or a broom. Likewise, the residents of this unnamed town called this woman sinner. To them, she was never a person at all. Being sinner defines her, prejudges her, and takes away from her her freedom and her identity. And the shame of that name is excruciating. We don't even know that she's guilty of anything. Maybe there is no guilt, but there's definitely shame. All we know is that this town heaps upon her and defines her by their own self-righteous judgments, and thus she is known only. Say it with me. Sinner. At some point, though, this woman must have encountered Jesus because something about him has touched her and changed her, and she is grateful. She wants to thank him to be near him, to worship him, to anoint his feet with the precious fragrance she's carried to Simon's house in an expensive alabaster flask. As a woman, she could never just have walked up to Jesus on the street and invited him to her house. Jewish men would not even speak to their own wives or to their mothers in public. Every single day, a Jewish man thanked God that he was not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Just to get close to Jesus, this woman, has to risk humiliation, scandal, and public scorn. And that's exactly what she does. Whatever it might cost her, she came early to Simon's house and waited with the crowd for the guest of honor to arrive. When he came into the room, Jesus took his place at the table and immediately she fell on her face at his knees, weeping copiously until his feet were drenched with her tears. And then she released her hair and to dry his feet with those tresses, kissing his feet and anointing them with the fragrant oil. She wasn't in a hurry either. The text says she kept on kissing. She kept on wiping. She kept on anointing. Behaving pretty much like the uppity woman the crowd assumed her to be. That was no proper woman would have let down her hair in public or touched a man, not even her husband, or gone alone into a room filled with men. Oh. She simply did not care. When your soul identity has been sinner 
and the person who sets the captives free comes along and actually looks at you and sees a living, breathing human being created by God to be much more than you ever dreamed possible, you cannot help yourself. You're going to love that person. And you're going to express that love to that person the best way you can. Dare not kiss his face. But she could kiss his feet. And so she did. Over and over and over and over. Of course, this drives Simon nuts. Apparently, he was testing Jesus to determine whether or not Jesus was a prophet. Quickly, he decided that Jesus could not be a prophet because, A, Jesus didn't know this woman was a sinner, and B, if he did know, he had made himself ceremonially unclean by allowing her to touch him. No self-respecting religious leader like Simon would have tolerated that kind of uncleanness. He'd have bathed and washed and changed his clothes and bathed and washed and changed his clothes over and over and over until he was ceremonially clean. What Simon did not and probably could not know is that Jesus didn't care who the woman was. He proved that he was a prophet more powerfully by reading Simon's mind. Then he told Simon a story. Have the next slide. So Jesus answered Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, mm, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, this woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. The story is a simple one. A money lender loaned money to two different individuals, neither of whom were able to repay their debt. Although one had borrowed ten times more money than the other one, the money lender forgave the debt of both of them. Which of the two, Jesus asked Simon, would love the money lender more? Simon's cautious answer was that the one who owed the most would love the man the most. Jesus confirmed the truth of that response. Underlying it was a principle. 
Those who are forgiven most love most. Jesus now takes the principle and applies it to Simon and the sinful woman. Simon shunned the woman because she was a sinner and expected Jesus to do likewise. Jesus rebukes Simon by showing that in every respect the woman has outdone Simon in her acts of love and devotion. In a country where people wore flimsy sandals on dusty roads, one's host typically washed the guest feet or had a slave wash the guest feet before dinner. Simon hadn't shown Jesus even that minimum courtesy. This woman not only washed his feet, she did it with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. And she had not ceased to kiss his dirty feet. Additionally, moreover, a guest of honor would have been greeted with a kiss of welcome, friendship, and hospitality. Simon didn't bestow a kiss on Jesus' face, but the woman kissed his feet. And to welcome Jesus, a real, uh, welcome a really special guest, the host would pour anointing oil, typically, on the head, anointing oil reserved for kings and priests, right? On the head of the person. If you, It was a really special guest. And Simon had not done that either. But this woman not only poured oil on his head, I mean on his feet, she used expensive perfumed oil from an expensive alabaster flask. And it gets better. To be indebted to a moneylender was a terrifying position to be in. If you owed a debt, you could be thrown in prison, your wife and children could be sold as slaves, and y'all, even God hated it. That's why when he gave the Mosaic Law, he included a period of jubilee. Oh, and by the way, Simon would have known that law by heart. When the Mosaic Law was given, there was a period of jubilee when every debt had to be canceled. No arguments. Just write them off. But sometimes there was a gracious lender who would cancel a debt even when it wasn't jubilee. He made it official by writing a big Greek chi over the amount that was owed him by the debtor, declaring to, both to the debtor and to everyone else that the debtor no longer owed him anything. You know where this is going, right? See, it gets even better. That same Greek, chi, is the letter which begins words like charis, grace. It begins the word karizamai, to forgive, to have mercy. It begins the word Christos, 
what that is. Right? What is it? Christ, absolutely. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about who has the power, the authority to cancel a debt, and yes, even to forgive sin. It's all about grace. Grace. That's what this unnamed woman knew that Simon didn't know. Jesus was a prophet, all right. But even more astounding than that, he had the power to forgive sin. I find his question, do you see this woman, to be incredibly evocative. Of course Simon sees the woman. He's been seething over her presence ever since she first laid her unholy hands on his guest. But does Simon see the woman whose provocative expression of brokenness and love is far more than her name tag that says sinner? Does he see past the reputation, the scarlet letter that mocks her, the notoriety to the person Jesus sees? Does he see the woman who is not secretly debating whether Jesus is a prophet or not, but who is pouring herself out in worship. Simon sees and does not see. With Jesus' eyes, even the marginalized people all around him, Jesus sees. Do we see with Jesus' eyes? Are they simply sinners? disdained or even worse mere objects like furniture to be ignored and taken for granted God help us to see with Jesus now Jesus speaks directly to the woman Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins have been forgiven. Forgiven, that's another fascinating word. In Greek, forgiven is a form of the infinitive aphianai. Aphianai, which means to remit or to release, to send away. Although it's not unique to Luke, Luke uses it more than any other New Testament writer, and almost always it refers to God's forgiveness. In Luke 23, 34, for example, it's the term Jesus uses as they nail him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It conjures up the Old Testament promise that God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them against us no more forever. Over our sin debt, he writes this huge chi, this eternal chi, and we owe him nothing at the same time. 
We owe him everything. Because he first loved us, we love him back. And we actively seek ways to demonstrate that love to him. How that plays out in each person's life is an individual thing. But we all start at the same place by accepting God's gift of forgiveness. Note that the woman didn't ask for it. Jesus simply offered it. Yet she jumped at the chance to grab it and own it. There are sins of the flesh which bring shame and scorn to this woman. She felt that shame disappear like a great weight lifted off of her shoulders. Same time, there are sins of spirit, hardness of heart, judgmental attitudes, a sense of superiority, which seem to bring peace and satisfaction to Simon. Jesus forgave the woman's sins and not Simon's. Why? Because she recognized her need And she thrust herself on the grave. Simon, on the other hand, felt no need to be forgiven. He knew his religious doctrine. I bet you there are some of us here today who have our doctrine straight, and we think that just makes us fine with God. Right? Simon had his doctrine straight. He was ceremonially clean, and he never associated with sinners. That, he thought, is what saved him. But Jesus said to the woman, it is your faith that has saved you. And then he said, go in peace. In the New Testament, that phrase, go in peace, is used only by Jesus. And only when he's speaking to some, he's speaking hope, healing, and forgiveness to some broken woman. In every case, the woman exchanges shame for honor and brokenness for peace. Is this silent, unnamed woman leaving Simon's house perfect? No. Will she ever sin again? Absolutely. She probably will spend the remainder of her earthly life in that little town where people will continue to speak badly of her, but her life is marked by peace, which they will not, cannot, either understand or rob her of. It's the kind of peace which the Bible says passes understanding. I can't believe there was a human being living at that time who could ever again make this woman feel inadequate or inferior or insecure or any other less than word you can come up with. This woman will know for now and for all eternity what it means to be loved by God 
in the big guy. And nothing else matters to her. Oh, yeah. Sometime afterward, Jesus went through the towns and villages preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna was the wife of Cusa, Herod's uh, household manager. Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. Some scholars insist that this uh, miracle that took place at Simon's house, and by the way, I, I, I don't mean to be unkind to Simon. I mean, I, I don't condemn him any more than I want him to condemn the woman. He is just as stuck as she is. The thing is, he's probably never going to get out. That's huge. That's what makes him a sympathetic character. But anyway, scholars who insist that this miracle is not a true healing miracle because healing and forgiveness of sins usually dovetail in the Gospels. Here we learn only that the woman is forgiven, but I think this story proves that that theory is wrong. It is the truest of healing miracles. Few words are as healing as you are forgiven, especially to those who never expect to hear them. Simon had no need to hear them. The woman needed desperately to hear them, and she heard them. I'm not sure we can even grasp the magnitude of what happened in that house that night. But in the very next chapter, we see the result. Sometime afterward, true to his interest in women, Luke transitions from the forgiving, faithful woman in the story we just read to several women who travel with Jesus and support him financially. These women, like that loose woman in the story, owe much to the healing, liberating power of Jesus, and their traveling with him rises to the level of scandal on steroids. My friend Felly calls it hardcore, hardcore scandal. Jewish rabbis, and to our knowledge, to this day, there's, there, there are none who accepted women into their circle. No record of it if, if that happened. They just didn't do it. And along comes Jesus, and he not only touches women and heals women and loves women and accepts women, he just actually brings them into his little band. I hope you do. Um, this just came to me. I didn't plan to say this, and I know it may be getting too long. But I, I, it came to me, and I want to say it. I remember when I was at UCA, one of the uh, organizations did a symposium on revolution. Uh, symposium, see, there's another good word. That's kind of what Simon's doing here. He's having a symposium. Well, anyway. 
they did a symposium on revolution. And a colleague of mine did a presentation on Jesus as revolutionary. And he opened with the idea that you don't have to have this personal relationship with Jesus to appreciate how revolutionary he was. I knew this guy. I mean, he had the most passionate personal relationship with Jesus you could ever want to see. But his point was, you don't have to have that kind of relationship to see how Jesus has changed history. He was revolutionary. And when we talk about women's issues, first, you are liberated. Jesus has already liberated you. You don't have to wait for somebody to Yeah, that's free. Moving right along. Some of these women are even named Mary Magdalene, who had been demon-possessed and who later would be the first person to see the risen Christ. Joanna, the wife of King Herod's chief financial officer, perhaps the mother of the little dying boy whom Jesus healed early in his ministry. Uh, that's in John 4. And also a witness to the resurrection. And then there's Susanna, unknown elsewhere in the Gospels, and apparently well-known in the early church, although we don't know a lot about her. While the others are unnamed, one writer points out that their names are surely recorded in heaven, arguing that much of Jesus' success in this open road ministry is attributable to these women. And they are often identified, often, as the first women missionaries in the history of Christianity. We sometimes note the diversity among Jesus' male apostles and overlook the diverse personalities among the women. That Mary Magdalene, the woman with the dark past, and Joanna, the woman of the court, not a popular court either, by the way, are in the same little band. Speaks volumes about their devotion to Jesus. Love does that. It endures all things. In the words of Charles Dickens, famous Miss Havisham, quote, I'll tell you what real love is. It is blind devotion, unquestioning self-humiliation, utter submission, the giving up of oneself, trust and belief against oneself, and against the whole world, giving up your whole heart and soul to the smiter. You see, it's easier to get over yourself when you realize that you're not tethered to anybody but Jesus. And when you've heard him say, you are forgiven, then you're in a position to do what he tells us to do, and that is to forgive others as he's forgiven us. I think that must have happened a lot in that little band. Recently I heard someone say, I've never heard God say to me, you are forgiven. That made me sad. And I knew then what I would say today and how I hoped we could conduct this service. People need to hear God say, you are forgiven. Oh, hear it today. Not from my mouth, 
but from the mouth of the one who loves you and gave himself for you. In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. And that's my segue into another Leighton story. Grandma alert here. One day when he was about three or four, Leighton was playing, on, uh, playing a Sesame Street game on our computer when his little hand knocked the mouse off in the floor. Immediately I ran to the mouse, picking up the pieces and wondering if the mouse could be repaired. Remember Leighton's tender little heart? Anna, he gasped, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I scooped him up in my arms, kissed his sweet freckled face, and assured him that nothing was more important to me than him. Certainly not a silly little mouse. No more was said about the incident that day. But when his mother arrived, the first words out of his mouth were not, Hi, Mommy. The very first thing he said to her was, Mommy, I broke Nana's mouth, but it's okay. She forgives me. Take that with you today. Like the woman at Simon's dinner party, we have all broken God's law. And even worse, we've broken his heart. But it's okay. He forgives us. And please try to forgive yourself. Whom God calls clean, nobody, including you, have the right to call unclean. And you know what? Our guy Luke wrote that too. Acts 10. If you want to. Thank you for being here. What a privilege it's been to share God's word with you today. Kenyon? This story began, Jesus came into the room and took his place at the table. That's how we're going to end it. Jesus came in the room, took his place at the table. He is inviting you now to share a meal that he has prepared. This table does not belong to Grace Church. It belongs to our Lord. Methodist table or a Baptist table or a Presbyterian table or a Lutheran table. It's the table of our Lord. Everybody is welcome. You are welcome. What do you need from him today? You need cleaning? You need healing? You need peace? What do you need from Jesus? You can find it right here at this table. And he is waiting. I would like for us to do communion a little differently today. So will you join me? as we read the ancient liturgy for communion. Our good, good father.
right, Alex? Our good, good Father, on the night in which he gave himself up for us, our Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread. Sorry? And said, take eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often. as often as you drink it. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. For your Holy Spirit, on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine, make them to be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Until Christ comes at his heavenly. Amen and amen. <laughs>